church located in Philadelphia. And no, I am not talking about Pennsylvania, which is very close to where my family now lives. That is not the place. This is in modern-day Turkey. Now, you need to understand something about this particular place. It, uh, as you can see uh, on the screen, we've got the map of the, the seven churches there in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. So today, as we think about Philadelphia, you need to understand it was about 50 kilometers or 30 miles or so from Sardis. And you might be wondering, well, how did it get its name? Well, it actually received its name from a guy named Attalus, the second, and he had a nickname, and his nickname was Philadelphus, and that means brother-lover, brother-lover, and, and the city of Philadelphia means the city of brotherly love, which uh, certainly is not a very apt description of where my family lives, but anyway, that's another point. But the city uh, had a number of benefits. You need to understand these because Christ is going to talk about some of these things. But number one, it, was, uh, it had a wonderful location because it was right at the junction of several important roads. And, uh, and as a result of that, the, uh, the Empire of Rome ended up making uh, the city of Philadelphia one of the imperial post stops. And so... And then, and then with that, it ended up becoming the gateway to the east, according to Rome. It also benefited from being on the edge of a volcanic region. And as a result of that, the, the soil was very fertile, and it was an ideal place for them to grow their vineyards. However, <laughs> for those of us who live on the shaky isles, like New Zealand, understand that when you are in a volcanic region, the ground might shake underneath you, right? And so it was even, even around the time of Christ, A.D. 17, for in, in fact, there was a very big earthquake. And this is one of the, the drawbacks of reg, living in a region like this. But the powerful earthquake rocked Philadelphia in particular, and and uh, they, in fact, they experienced a lot of aftershocks. And I don't think any of you are uh, were in Christchurch during the earthquake and its aftershocks, but I understand for people who, who have lived down there, a number of people moved away because they just couldn't deal with the ground shaking and never knowing when the ground's going to start moving on you and, and and then all the problems that come with that. But... You can imagine uh, even people in Philadelphia were racked by this experience. It was a, a life-changing experience, and it left them with, with uh, life-altering psychological scars. And, and, and these things were even still affecting them during the time of this writing, which was somewhere in the 90s. And, and so Jesus obviously knew that. Uh, and so he, he, you need to understand, that's kind of the foundation of this message to the church in Philadelphia. So let's read together quietly. <laughs> Revelation 3. Look at verse 7. Revelation 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut 
who shuts and no one opens. Jesus, notice, notice what he says here. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. They will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this text is telling us that Christ wants us to do something. So this wasn't just for the church at Philadelphia. So here's what Christ wants you to do, friends. Christ wants you to be faithful to him. See, this was a faithful church. In other words, it was a loyal church, particularly to the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ. And as with all the churches, Jesus tells the church and the pastor of the church in particular who he is. Notice the character of Jesus here. As Jesus describes himself, Christ's character in verse 7 is first of all described as holy. He is holy. Now that phrase, by the way, refers to God alone. He is the only one who possesses absolute holiness. Now holiness, by the way, is far more than just uh, being perfect or sinless. Uh, it, it, it goes beyond that to mean he is totally distinct. He is unique. He is separate. And so part of that means um, here that, yes, he's holy, he is sinless, that's true, but Christ is claiming deity when he says this. And, and in fact, he's the only one worthy of worship. Uh, and, and you see in the very next chapter... Notice what's happening in heaven there at the throne of God. Revelation 4, verse 8 says that the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. His central attribute. He is holy. He is worthy of all of our worship. And so to say that God is holy is to say that He is utterly separate from sin, and therefore His character here is absolutely unblemished, totally flawless, which makes Him, by the way, worthy to be the Lamb. And so you'll see later on there in chapter 4 and 5, 
as, as everybody's mourning and wanting somebody to open the scroll, Jesus comes and takes that scroll because he's the only one worthy. Because he's without blemish and he is flawless. But Christ is more than holy. Number two, he is true. You'll see in verse 7, he is true. And that just refers to something that is genuine. It's not a fake. You ever bought a fake? Right? You, you, you think you're buying the, the genuine article. I don't, I don't know. You ladies might go, so you think you're buying some really uh, expensive purse, and you look at it and you say, ooh, that's a really good deal. Because, you know, the, the genuine article might be in the hundreds, maybe thousands of dollars for that uh, really name brand purse. And you're like, wow, that's really cheap. I'm going to buy that. Yeah, well, there's a reason why it's cheap, because it's not genuine. right? You, you, you ever got sucked into one of those? Well, Jesus is saying, I, I'm, I am the genuine article. I am authentic. I am real. <laughs> I am the true Lord of the church. And number three, he says that he has authority there in verse 7. He has all authority when, when, it, when he's talking about having the keys. Uh, you need to understand in Scripture, uh, keys represent authority. And so, obviously, whoever is holding the key then has control, right? I think we all have keys for something, don't we? Right? When you have that key, then you have control with that key to be able to open and to shut, to enter and leave buildings or boxes or chests or whatever, your sheds or whatever the key is for, Right? So, notice, though, in this case, Christ has a particular key. It is the key of David, verse 7 says. Now, that's a symbol of the messianic office that Christ held. Uh, Remember, Jesus, if you read Matthew 1, for example, Luke chapter, you know, Luke talks about this as well. See, Jesus is in the line of David. Puts him in that messianic line. He is the one worthy to be the Messiah. And so, as the holder of that office, Christ alone here has the sovereign authority to determine who gets to enter into his messianic kingdom. But not only does he have the authority here, notice he has sovereignty. He has sovereignty, total sovereignty, by the way, in verse 7 there. Is it, that's what it means by his ability to come and open and shut doors. And so this means that Christ here is the all-powerful one, or as theologians call it, he is omni, um, sorry, omnipotent. Because omni means all, potent refers to his power. And what he does here cannot be overturned, because notice what Jesus says, no one can shut the doors to his blessing if, if Christ is the one holding that door open. There is no one more powerful than him. If he's holding your door of blessing open, Satan can't shut it. Our government can't shut it. He is sovereign. And that means nobody can then open the door if Jesus is holding it shut. (laughs) So that means he has total sovereign control over the whole world. Uh, But particularly in this context, he has sovereign control over his church. And as usual, Jesus doesn't just talk about himself. He talks about the church. So look at the commendation he gives to the church at Philadelphia. 
Now, some people don't think verse 8 is actually a commendation, but uh, notice, first of all, what Jesus says is they had a little power. They had a little power. Now, I don't think that was meant to be a negative comment because Christ, uh, I, I think he's actually commending their strength. Because you see, the church was small in numbers, but even a church small in numbers can still have a big impact on its community. And so despite the small size, spiritual power was flowing in and through this church. Uh, people were being converted. Lives were being transformed. People were growing in Christ. And the gospel of Jesus was being proclaimed. That's good news, friends, because obviously we're a small church. So we, we, we can sit here and grumble and complain about being small. And, like, you know, we don't have lots of numbers. We don't have heaps of money. So what can we do? Well, you can be like the Philadelphia church. You can have a little power. You can have an influence. After all, Jesus himself in Matthew 5 says, You are the light. You are salt. That's what you are. So have an influence. Have an influence. We need to be an influence because we do have a little power. Jesus also commends them for the, the fact in verse 8, they kept his word. They kept his word. Now, that doesn't mean they're hiding it under their pillow or under their mattress or in some vault, you know, in, a, in some concrete vault. That's not what it's talking about. To keep his word, the idea is there that the Christians were obedient to God. They, they knew it, first of all, because how can you really obey something you don't know? Right? So they knew the word of God so that they then for, therefore could obey it, and then they did everything that God wrote in the Bible. That's so important. See, you can't just pick and choose the parts you like. <laughs> right? You know, oh, that verse there, you know, or that command there, or that promise there, or whatever. You know, I like that part, but that one over there, no, I, yeah, I don't like that one. So I'm going to ignore that one. Right? You, you can't do what the third president of the United States did and get out your scissors and start cutting portions out of the Bible. That's not acceptable to God. It's, it's all or nothing. That's how you keep his word. And so Jesus commends them for obeying all of it. But number three, Christ commends them. And he, and he, in verse 8 again, he says, hey, they, they did not deny Christ's name. They didn't deny his name. So despite the pressures that all of these churches were experiencing, they remained loyal to Christ, they were faithful, and it didn't matter what it cost them. Are you willing to be that way? Have, have you been like, uh, I love Daniel, Daniel chapter 1. Uh, this is a good attitude that, that Daniel had, because Daniel 1, I think it was verse 8. Here, here, here's how you're loyal to Christ. See, you have to come with a purpose, and it has to come ahead of time, because the Bible says that Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's meat. He went in ahead of time knowing how he was going to please God. God came first in his life, and it didn't matter what was going to happen to him. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I will not deny Christ. That's how we have to do it too, friends. 
you purpose in your heart ahead of time, Christ is the one whom I love with all my heart, and I don't care what this world or Satan and my indwelling sin throws at me, I will obey Christ. Have you purposed in your heart that you're not going to deny Christ? You've got to do that ahead of time, because under pressure, a lot of good people have succumbed under pressure throughout church history. But number four, Christ commends them that they endured. Notice, how did they endure? Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. They endured, because it says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. (laughs) So they endured with patience. They endured with patience. The idea is that the Christians persevered faithfully, through all of those trials and difficulties. See, it's one thing to not deny Christ, but what is your testimony and witness before your church family in this world? As you go through difficult times, as you're going through a trial, what's your countenance look like? What's going on in your heart? What's going on in your mind? Are you persevering with patience? Or are you impatient? Very easy to be impatient when trials are falling on you and life is difficult. But may I remind you, friends, that not only is God watching you, but the world is watching you. The world's watching you. And one of the best ways you can have a a glorious testimony for Christ and not deny His name is through your, your joy in the peace that you exhibit and and demonstrate as you're going through trials and difficulties. So they endured with patience, and Christ commends them for those four things. Now, a lot of the churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey there, Christ had some negative things to say about them. He, he chastened them. So let's talk about Christ chastening to the church at Philadelphia. Well, actually, he didn't say anything. (laughs) I'm being a little cheeky today. He had nothing negative to say that I'm aware of. Uh, Go ahead, search the Scriptures yourself. Try to find something. This is one of the few churches in the book of Revelation where Christ, as far as I'm aware, did not chasten them for anything. Now, that doesn't mean they were perfect. There is no such thing as a perfect church. So if you're looking for one, don't don't attend it because you'll ruin it. Right? There is no perfect church on earth yet. It doesn't exist. But nevertheless, Christ doesn't give them any chastening in this passage. So what a glorious model for us to, to look at here and to study and follow. We'll move on. But... Christ does give some counsel here in verse 11 to this church at Philadelphia. Notice verse 11. He he says, hey, I'm coming soon, so hold fast. That's a command, by the way. Hold fast to to what? (laughs) Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. (laughs) So hold on. Hold on. This church, by the way, had been faithful and loyal to Christ. and, And so... Jesus commends them for that, but Christ commanded them here to remain that way. 
See, it's one thing to be loyal and faithful to Christ in the past, but we need to continue that. And so those who persevere to the end are actually proving the genuineness of their salvation. It's not enough to start out good, but you need to finish the race of life. And so Christ promises to the one who who is faithfully persevering, he says, no one will seize your crown. What's that talking about? Well, the crown or the reward here is the, the crown which is literally life. In other words, Christ is promising you eternal life for everybody who is faithfully enduring and persevering to the end. So, friend, if you faithfully persevere, you're actually showing the genuineness of your faith. You're showing you have a faith that is not fearing the loss of your salvation because it's genuine. And so Christ gives them this counsel, hold on to what you have so no one's going to take your crown. And then he gives them a challenge. Christ gives the church a challenge in starting there in verse 9 all the way through 13. In verse 9, we see that the Christian's enemies will be defeated. Christian's enemies will be defeated, according to verse 9. Notice what verse 9 says, because Jesus says, Behold, I, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, They will learn that I have loved you. What's that talking about? Let me try to explain it. See, the the Christians in Philadelphia here faced hostility, but notice where's the hostility coming from? Particularly from these unbelieving Jews. They were were Israelis, but they were not Christians. (laughs) The hostility, by the way, Jesus says, was so serious that, he, that Christ says these Jews were actually of the synagogue of Satan. Amazingly, Christ, by the way, promised that some of those very Jews who were persecuting the Christians would actually, someday in the future, come and bow down at their feet. Now, that doesn't happen much today, but, but you need to understand the significance of that because bowing at someone's feet was showing total defeat and submission. It showed total defeat and submission. Here's someone who is is in in real submission when you're on the ground bowing before someone. Uh, The idea is there the enemies would be utterly humbled and defeated before these Christians. So the good news is that some of the very persecutors who were persecuting the, the Christians there in Philadelphia would would uh, would eventually become Christians themselves. How did that happen? Well, one way that happened was through the faithful testimony of this church. They were a faithful, loyal church. And it's, it's through their gospel witness that they saw what a real Christian is. And so there's a lesson to be learned here, friends, that people are watching and learning from your witness and testimony. Have you heard that saying that sometimes the only Bible that someone's going to read is you? Might be. I don't know. You might be the only Bible someone ever reads. So what are they going to think about God as they look at you? 
Well, the good news is there were, some of these Jews are, they, they, if they haven't become Christians later on here, it, Jesus says they will. And it was all through their witness and testimony. That's a good challenge, even for us. Be careful. Be careful of your testimony. Remember what Proverbs says, a good name, rather to be chosen than great riches. It's a precious thing you need to guard. Guard it, protect it. There's a second challenge that Christ gives, and he says in verse 10 that that the Christians will be kept from the hour of trial. They'll be kept from the hour of trial. Now, this verse is very controversial. So let me try to serve you well, okay? Uh, Now, you need to understand, particularly when you come to a book like uh, the Revelation of Jesus Christ here, or Bible prophecy, uh, Christians today, and for many centuries now, uh, haven't always seen eye to eye, (laughs) particularly on the, the doctrine of future things which we call eschatology. And you might be wondering, why is it that Christians can read the same Bible and come to different conclusions? Like on a verse like this, this is just one of many examples. Why is it that good people can have disagreements? Well, really, it depends on your hermeneutic, which is why I I insist that all Christians study hermeneutics. (laughs) Because there's only one correct interpretation of Scripture. Only one correct interpretation of Scripture. So if we're not in agreement on something, at minimum we're both wrong, but there's no way we can both be right. Let me try to serve you here, because if you haven't figured it out yet, my particular hermeneutic or interpretation of Scripture is I'm coming from a literal, grammatical, historical method. Of Bible interpretation. So, some of you have been, you might be wondering, why is it that Pastor Scott has a different view from me? <laughs> or, why do that, that, that Christian church over there has a different, you know, their doctrinal statement says di- something different from our church's doctrinal statement. Why is that? Well, it comes down to hermeneutics. So, let me explain this to you quickly. Uh, th- this definition comes from uh, the website faith.edu, I'm quoting here, it says the, uh, on the screen guys, it says the grammatical historical method comprises several aspects. In grammatical interpretation, the interpreter seeks to understand the meaning of the words, syntax, and grammar of a passage. Because the biblical languages are Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, interpreters stress the importance of knowing these languages. The text of Scripture is composed of words, which necessitates comprehending their meaning, but this meaning is in the intention of the original author and the surrounding context. Seeking the author's intent is a vital key to accurate understanding. This goal places a restraint on the interpreter in which he seeks to draw out, that's exegete, because ex means out, the author's meaning instead of reading it into the text, which is what we call eisegesis. Eis means in. You're reading your own meaning into the text, which we shouldn't do. But anyway, they go on to say that the interpreter will also consider broader context, such as the surrounding chapters, 
the book or related passages to gain further understanding, end quote. So all three parts are really important in your hermeneutic. So I hold to a, notice it's a grammatical, historical, literal hermeneutic. So by, by grammatical, I just mean the, the grammar matters. God, the Holy Spirit, has inspired every word of Scripture. Uh, history matters. These are real events uh, coming within a, in a historical time period, uh, written by real people to two real people. Adam and, Adam and Eve, for example, were real people. <laughs> Even though that's under attack today, but uh, literal a literal part literal is is really important. That should be your default mode when you come to the Bible, and you only go off track unless God bumps you off track by showing you figurative language. So, with, with that in mind, you come to a a a text like verse ten, which is very controversial. I have friends who don't agree with me. They have a different view when it comes to the rapture, for example. And uh, by the way, if you have a different view from me, I still love you dearly. Okay, We can still fellowship together. Uh, your view on the rapture is not an essential of the faith. right? So if you hold to a, mid, a mid-tribulation view or a pre-wrath view or a post-tribulation view, uh, I still believe you can go to heaven, okay? Right? Uh, it's it's not an essential. Please don't turn it into one. But uh, we, we need to land somewhere here, okay? So I believe that, that, that your hermeneutic or your method, if you hold to a grammatical, historical, literal hermeneutic, you're going to land on a pre-tribulation rapture view. Well, what's that about? Well, that's coming from verse 10. Let me Let me try to explain a little bit here. This can get complicated. So let me read some commentators here for you, coming from a dispensational view. For example, the the Bible Knowledge Commentary says this, quote, This here, verse 10, is an explicit promise that the Philadelphia church will not endure the hour of trial which is unfolded, beginning in Revelation chapter 6. Christ was saying that the Philadelphia church would not enter the future time of trouble. He could not have stated it more explicitly. If Christ had meant to say that they would be preserved through a time of trouble or would be taken out from within the tribulation, a different verb and a different preposition would have been required. Though scholars have attempted to avoid this conclusion in order to affirm post-tribulationism, the combination of the uh, verb there, keep, which is the Greek terene, with the preposition from, which is Greek ek, is in sharp contrast to the meaning of keeping the church through, which is a preposition which is not used here. The expression, the hour of trials, a specific time period, which makes it clear that they would be kept out of that period. It is difficult to see how Christ could have made this promise to this local church if it were God's intention for the entire church to go through the tribulation that will come on the entire world. So even though the church of Philadelphia would go to glory through death long before the time of trouble would come, if the church here is taken to be typical of the body of Christ standing true to the faith, 
The promise seems to go beyond the Philadelphia church to all those who are believers in Christ. End quote. Now, it's a complicated argument. I hope you're able to stick with it there. So, hopefully you hold to a grammatical hermeneutic. The grammar matters. The verbs matter. Even the prepositions matter. Right? When the Holy Spirit picks a little preposition like in, that matters. <laughs> or he picks a verb like keep, it, it, it matters. So, uh, so, so many Bible interpreters have landed here that this is a, a specific promise that God's going to keep his people out of this specific time period called the tribulation, seven-year tribulation. And so look what John MacArthur, Pastor John MacArthur says this, quote on the screen here for you. Because the believers in Philadelphia had successfully passed so many tests, Jesus promised to spare them from the ultimate test. The sweeping nature of that promise extends far beyond the Philadelphia con- congregation to encompass all faithful churches throughout history. So this verse promises that the church will be delivered from the tribulation, thus supporting a pre-tribulation rapture. The rapture, by the way, is the subject of three passages in the New Testament. You'll find it in John 14, verses 1 through 4, 1 Corinthians 15, and then have a read of 1 Thessalonians 4. Those are all great passages showing you the catching up, which we call the rapture. And so he says that none of, none of those passages, by the way, speak of judgment, but rather of the church being taken up to heaven. And the view that seems to be supported by this text is the rapture takes place before the tribulation. And that view is called pre-tribulationism. End quote. Right? So, little little complicated there. I hope that didn't overwhelm you. If you have questions, come and talk to me later. But what a what a glorious challenge to the church. Be faithful. Be loyal. And, and, and so if you are, Christ is saying, I'm, I'm going to protect you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep you. You're, you're, you're safe in my hands here. And number three, Jesus Christ says that the Christians will become pillars in the temple of God. Now, what's that talking about? Well, uh, I've given you a picture of some pillars. Maybe this will help you. But in pagan temples, pillars can represent several things. Uh, number one, they represented honor. They were often carved in such a way as to honor their deity, for example. You say, well, what's the point on that? Well, the the promise that Christ makes is that Christians are going to have an eternal place of honor in heaven. And by the way, heaven here is talking about, in that verse, verse 12, is referred to as the temple of God. What great news, friends. Think about it. And, and by the way, did you notice that the, the news gets even better there in verse 12? Because Christ says, never shall he go out of it. Out of what? Out of the temple of God. Never will you go out of, the, out of heaven. It, it's, it's a permanent reality. Now, remember, who is this letter written to? It's to people who understood earthquakes. They understood earthquakes. And so the people who are used to fleeing their city because of earthquakes and enemies attacking and so forth, the promise of something that was eternally secure was comforting. Something eternally secure and eternal glory had to be encouraging to these people. 
and should be to you and me as well. There is something that is eternally secure, but it's not here on earth. And that's why your, your affections need to be set on things that are above in heaven. Well, Christ says also here that the, the Christians will be owned by God in verse 12. They will, own be, they will be owned by God because notice verse 12 mentions that the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and, and never shall he go out of it and I will write on him the name of my God. So you'll see a picture on the screen here of my favorite animated movie. And one of the most awesome things about being a parent is you get to watch animated movies and no one thinks you're weird because you're watching it with your children. Not to mention I've watched it without my children. But anyway, that's another issue. Um, but, but in Toy Story, I love the, the, the character Woody because character, the, the character Woody there, that little toy cowboy, has, the, has his owner write his name on the bottom of his boot. You'll see it's Andy. Because Woody is owned by Andy. And this is what often owners do to their things, their stuff, their possessions, right? Have you ever done that to any of your stuff? Engrave your name, write your name with a Sharpie, or however you might do it? A lot of people do this. It's normal. Why do we do that? Because we own it. Well, guess what? God owns you. God owns his people. And God has a name, and he writes his name on his property. And so we see here in verse 12 that the Christians will be owned by God. What a blessing. And so we, we, we write our name on our property because it shows ownership. We don't want someone to either accidentally take it. That's a positive view. The negative view is they purposely stole our stuff. Uh, but, it, but it's signifying that all the Christians here belong to God. It's, it's speaking of an intimate, personal relationship that we have with God and it's something that is forever. Nobody's going to come along and erase the name off the bottom of your boot. <laughs> it's permanent. It's not coming off. And I'm very thankful that's the case. But number five, we also see here another challenge, that the Christians will have an eternal citizenship in heaven. So it's getting even better. Not only is God's name on the bottom of your boot... But you're, you have a citizenship in a glorious place, and it's permanent, eternal. So Christ promised the believers here, notice, is that the name of the capital city of heaven is permanently belonging to you. By the way, notice, what is the name of the capital of heaven? The New Jerusalem. You see that in verse 12? The New Jerusalem. By the way, that's a real place. In fact, the Holy Spirit spends an entire chapter in chapter 21 talking about the glorious capital city of heaven. And if, you've, if, if you don't know that chapter well, I encourage you to go back this afternoon, have a good study. You say, well, what's the point of that, by the way? You always want to know the point, right? Well, Christ here is promising something that is, uh, it, it's something that, he's promising security. He's promising something of safety and Glory to all the Christians, and, and that's really awesome. And so I want I, I want you to look at what Christ here is making for Christians, because because you need to think about this. 
Christians have an eternal citizenship in this wonderful place called the New Jerusalem. Now, I've just put a few graphic art pictures and stuff on the screen here for you, but one of the, the cool things that Revelation tells us is the New Jerusalem is a massive cube that has a room in there for every Christian. All of Christ's followers have a room. And Jesus said so in John 14, right? He, he encouraged you with those words. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you to be with me in this, this new Jerusalem. And you'll be with me in my Father's house, which has all these rooms, and you have a room for you. How cool is that? And, and in the new Jerusalem, it's, it's such a wonderful place. We, we just throw the gold out on the streets, basically. <laughs> Somebody's done some interesting graphic art here. It, it, that's probably not even an accurate representation. It's probably even way better that, than that. But uh, you get the point, right? See, in heaven, there's streets of gold. In heaven, the, uh, Revelation 21 describes the gates are made of giant pearls. Giant pearls. And every time I'm going to walk in and out of those gates, they're going to be a constant reminder of Jesus and what he's done for me. And uh, it's such a beautiful place that the Bible describes the walls are made out of gemstones. Revelation 21 is very descriptive. Have a read. It describes all these gemstones. Uh, you can see in the next slide, uh, well, there they are, the, the, the 12 foundation stones. I'm not going to bother reading those for you, but they're beautiful. And the Bible describes even the, the light of the world. Jesus himself will shine through those gemstones, and it will be dazzling. Revelation 21 describes the trees. The trees are interesting, aren't they? We'll get to eat in heaven. I'm so thankful for that. Because um, I, I think it I know it's not in the Bible. I'm being a bit cheeky, but I almost think that eating is one of my spiritual gifts. That uh, I, I love it. It, it. it It's not in the love language book, but it should be. Eating is awesome. What a great pleasure that God's given to us. And And in heaven, it describes these trees with 12 different kinds of fruit on them. Imagine what that's going to be like. So your taste buds will no longer be cursed by sin. The fruit's no longer going to be cursed by sin. You're never going to bite into any of God's fruit and find a, a worm. Uh, your, your taste buds are going to be perfect to enjoy the perfect fruit. I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to having my own mansion. Because I've been crammed in 50 square meters with five people in my family now for almost a year. I can't wait to have huge space in, in the new Jerusalem. You ought to try it sometime. You'll be thankful when you get to the New Jerusalem. Uh, the, the other great thing about the New Jerusalem, the Bible describes, is there's no longer any sin. The curse of sin is removed. And so even, even the creation itself is going to be destroyed, the Bible mentions, and, and God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And so the curse of sin, even upon creation itself, will be gone. And, of course, the best part has to be that Jesus will be our king. He'll have the perfect ruler. 
And for once in my life, I'll actually agree with the government. Can't you, just, won't that be amazing? You'll actually agree with the government. You'll be in perfect submission. You'll, you'll love every decision the government makes. And you'll love even the governor himself. And so those are just a few of the things that Revelation 21 is elaborating on when it talks about this capital city of heaven called the New Jerusalem. And friends, I, I, I hope you're looking forward to that. Uh, the, these are supposed to be motivations for you to be loyal and faithful to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But there's one more mentioned here in verse 12. It says the Christians will be given Christ's name. You, you'll be given Christ's name. Now, what, what in the world is that talking about? Because it says that at the end of verse 12 that the, the name of the city of my God and then the new Jerusalem coming down from, from my God out of heaven. And, and then Jesus says, and then my own new name. My own new name? Does that mean Jesus is going to get a new name? I'm not sure exactly what this means, to be quite frank with you, but it's obviously something significant. It is important Jesus is talking about it. Christ's name, by the way, always represents the fullness of his person. And so you always see God and the Holy Spirit and and, and Jesus, they've, they've always has a name and various titles to help us to understand who they are. And so the, the new name by which we're going to call him then is going to reflect the glorious revelation of his person. Well, what great news that is, because Christians are then going to have Christ more fully revealed to them. Uh, we're going to understand him better than we do now. I can't wait. I'm really looking forward to that. Are you? Are you looking forward to knowing Christ even better than you do now? You should. This, this was motivation for a church to be faithful and loyal to Christ and never to deny his name. So you've got to get your eyes off your earthly life. Otherwise, you will be tempted to do that. But when your eyes are on Christ and the glorious things of the future, then you're, you're motivated to please God and live for Him. So the Christians here have been promised a lot of rich blessings. Okay, I've, I've parked on that part probably the longest for good reason. We need to understand these rich blessings. And, and so I ask you, friends, are you motivated like they are, like Jesus was trying to motivate them? Are you motivated by these same kinds of motivations? My friend, let these blessings motivate you to to follow the Christian's example of faithfulness and loyalty to Christ. So the question for you, friend, is, are you being faithful to Christ? Are you being loyal to Christ? Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, your faithfulness. (laughs) You are always faithful, always trustworthy, We're thankful for the the various character qualities we've seen there in Scripture, who Jesus is. May we believe that. May we live accordingly. And so may we be motivated by these sorts of motivations that, that, that Jesus has obviously said are incredibly significant and important. We're thankful that 
this earth is not all there is. And, and my uh, decaying, um, degrading body is certainly not all there is. May we look forward to something better in the future. Far better. May we look forward to a future with Christ. And so thank you for putting these things here in the Bible for us. May we believe them. and May we live them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.